Hey, it's Alana. And Ashna. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow coming at ya. (laughs) Welcome back, Black and Yellow Nation. Spring is finally in full swing, and we are happy to be back tickling your eardrums for another episode of the Black and Yellow podcast. If you are new to this show, this caution tape colored nation that we have created here, welcome. Feel free to kick back, relax, and subscribe if you like what you hear. We'd like to stay connected with you. And if you're a regular listener, we're happy to have you back. Happy spring. Hey. Um, As a return listener, I know that many of you know that Jacqueline, our OG podcast co-host of mine, my OG creator, is taking a step back from the show. She's no longer doing on-air hosting. However, her and I have been working behind the scenes tirelessly to find a great replacement that we think would be a great example to bring in uh, to fill her shoes, but also that we think someone that you're going to vibe on and someone that you're going to really enjoy. And uh, this topic episode today was actually brought to us courtesy of my guest host, Jackie's possible replacement. She is hopping in the co-hosting saddle with me today. Um, It's funny, she recommended this topic and quite frankly... I don't know why we have not covered this particular topic in what is now the uh, fourth year of this podcast, but I'm so happy that we are covering it. Uh, That changes today. But before we get into today's topic and guest interview, I would love it, Ashna, if you could introduce yourself to the Black and Yellow audience. Thanks, Alana, for giving me the chance to guest host. Hey, y'all, yeah. I'm so excited to talk about tea and hope <laughs> all of you will enjoy it as well. I know I sound like a total tea nerd, but uh, <laughs> as for me, I used to work in corporate as a project manager before packing my bags and moving across the country to Los Angeles so I could be an actress. It's been a yeah. little <laughs> it's been a little over three years since I've lived in Los Angeles and um, last year, you know, 2020 was supposed to be the big year, as I'm sure all of you have related to. <laughs> but <laughs> but when the pandemic reached the United States and Hollywood shut down, I just I decided to write and make films so I could learn about the other side of filmmaking, since we really need more diverse and women centric stories in Hollywood. Um, mm. And I hope that you all feel the same way about that. Because yeah, I think. <laughs> Alana definitely does. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm slowly, you know, it's gl- I'm glad to see that that is slowly changing, obviously, if you look at the Oscar nominations this year alone. Uh, but I just needed an outlet to kind of keep myself sane while staying in the house all the time. And I'm sure that all of you, like I said, have probably have your own trying experiences in this pandemic and can relate. But every time I opened social media, the posts were so depressing and all my friends were having a hard time coping just like me. So that's kind of when I decided to launch a quarantine web series where I would bring on talented actors, editors, and composers in the industry who were interested in being creative but felt stuck or lonely at home. And everyone worked remotely and virtually, so no one left their house. Um, That's kind of how we were able to keep everybody safe. And I'm really proud of it because... What I really wanted to do was to bring some level of solidarity and sense of community during this pretty lonely time. And uh, it's really come out to be something that's grown and we've really become a family out of it and people who wouldn't ordinarily have met, uh, I mean, virtually have now met. 
and so if you would love to, if you would like to support our community, I'd really appreciate it. You can watch our films for free on YouTube and help us out by subscribing too. It's called youtube.com slash as the collective LA. And the web series is called that quarantine life. Now on to the more exciting topic of the day. <laughs> Enough about me. Today's topic is tea and gender. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about that tea life. I will also drop a link to Ashna's web series in the show notes if you would like to support. And we do hope that you would. And now on with today's topic, which when we were brainstorming, um, you expressed interest in talking about tea, and I thought that was a great idea. I also wondered how we had gotten this far in this podcast's existence <laughs> and not talked about tea, uh, specifically about how in the United States, tea has been classified as a feminine beverage for the better part of 150 years. And when I mentioned this fact to you, you had a very different take on this. Am I right? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's funny, Alana, like, honestly, had you not brought it up, I wouldn't have ever really thought of it. You know, um, mm. it's one of those things where I think it was like a subconscious thought of like, oh, this actually is how American CT, but the rest of the world doesn't. But I didn't necessarily like think about it. Um, and so I'm really glad, I'm really glad that you did because I learned things about, you know, the gendering of tea that I would never have learned before, uh, I got involved and just excited about tea. And I think my, you know, my Asian ancestors would still say, even though I am passionate about tea, they're probably still disappointed in me a little bit because I'm oh, not no! as heavy of a tea drinker. <laughs> Can I ask, what is a heavy tea drinker? Like, what does Ooh, that mean? Like five cups, five to six cups a day. Wow. And that might not even, I mean, some people drink more, but like my family, for example, that's uh, pretty normal. That's a normal day, you know, five wow. to six cups. And that doesn't include like their standard cup of coffee in the morning too. So. Okay. Um, so that's not substituted. That is with. <laughs> that is with. Yeah. They definitely need their tea. Uh, <laughs> But okay. I, yeah, exactly. It's a thing. I'm like, how, how are you not? I mean, how are you not tired of drinking tea so many times a day? But, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. I think it's just part of the culture. But I will say that I'm not necessarily as into like the traditional black teas. I like mm. more herbal teas. And I think that's where my Asian ancestors would be like freaking out in their graves, you know, because got it. Like, got it. <laughs> They're going to haunt you as you make herbal tea. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, They're yeah. like, chamomile tea, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I cannot, I will say, you know, if you give me a good masala chai, I will take that and Ooh. I will down it. Um, that is still something that is kind of a guilty pleasure, but I don't know how to make it very well. Again, another thing that my Asian ancestors would be disappointed in me. For. Got it. Got it. Another reason to haunt you. I understand. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, but I mean, more importantly, I think, you know, one thing I always like to preface because even though, you know, being born and raised in America, I think one thing you learn is that Starbucks is not they're not the ones that Ugh. created chai. And I think in uh -oh. America, like that's still kind of a popular notion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 it is. And it drives me bonkers because yeah. India and China sure. are like, they've been around for so long, you know, in, in their mm -hmm. classical civilizations, 
you know, according to some historians, um, people in China and India were drinking, you know, in 2500, 2700 BC. So this is like, this is way before Christ. So that's all I'm saying. Um, is that chai is not a new concept. It is definitely not. And you can thank all of Asia, primarily China, Japan, and India as the big main countries where kind of the seeds were then planted and mm. um, in other parts of the world. And so now you do see like most countries have different variations of tea based off of their own climate and kind of what, uh, you Ooh. know, through that kind of migration, I guess I should say, through the trade routes. So that's kind of where we are. Interesting. So first things first, I, I, I hope that I hope and pray that when you are making this herbal tea, it is delicious. But I hope and pray that you also like can make a badass cup of machala tea of masala tea before you die just so that the ancestors are not like shaking you like what the fuck all of that time you spent on earth and you didn't learn how to make a good cup of this how dare you um but i feel that but i definitely feel that yeah uh we had a cultural food episode a couple of episodes ago and i on that podcast was like yeah like for a black individual i can't make all of your standard uh black soul food dishes and i feel a little less black so <laughs> i'm in the same uh, boat with you i'm in the same kettle with you if, okay if you oh that's cute that is really <laughs> cute <laughs> i love that <laughs> uh in terms of my tea drinking i have to be honest i have always looked at tea as the sick like the mm. sick and shut-in beverage mm -hmm. in my house that was pretty much when tea was consumed my parents are hardcore coffee drinkers as okay. am i black all the way never any of that sugar or cream or nonsense espresso or just a strong <laughs> black cup of coffee but again when one of us was sick it was like get the green tea get the herbal tea and so mm -hmm. i feel like mm -hmm. I am like a lot of Americans who do not have an appreciation for tea or who only appreciate it when we are in need of it, when our bodies are screaming out for something other mm -hmm. than coffee or water or juice. I will say though, this episode had a subconscious effect on me and I started to drink it more. Ooh. Like I had my cup of green tea next to me. When we were speaking to Rebecca, who was our guest today, I also had my cup of green tea. I've been finding myself incorporating it more into my life. And I think that this episode has a lot to do with that. So I will thank you and Rebecca on the onset because I don't think what brand did I buy? I don't think I would have spent as much money on Yogi Tea, which I'm sure for you, you're like, what the fuck? No, I, oh, no, no. Hey, hey, Yogi Tea, man. I'm not kidding. I've, I had it. I, it saved me in college through winter semesters. Oh, um, yes. So uh, there is no judgment there. And, and honestly, you have to find what tea is on. I mean, of course, more traditional people, I think, would definitely say like, oh, my God that's not real tea but yeah I think sure at the end of the day like it is still tea and there's just different herbs and it might not be the traditional like oolongs from asia or like um the assamese tea from india blends but it doesn't necessarily matter because brewing these tea leaves um no matter what plant they are have medicinal properties and so you're still getting those benefits so don't feel bad if you know you're not like a tea connoisseur just try it and you might actually notice that it helps you in some ways in your health or just your everyday life. And you don't need to necessarily feel like it's, oh, I don't know the, the right brand, you know? 
Totally. I mean, after hearing you and Rebecca speak of tea, there is a part of me that's like, ooh, I wonder what a tea vacation would be like and would taste like. Mm. Kind of like a foodie vacation if you were like traveling through India, tasting all kinds of different pastas. There were parts of me during this interview that were making me think, hmm, I wonder what a tea, like a a tea-centric destination would be like. And it sounds like it'd be a lot of fucking fun. It to would be, be honest with you. Tea tasting rooms are the best. They're such a cool environment and they're so peaceful and calming. And it's a, and, and there's, they're also like surprisingly very intimate. So if you know, you're Ooh. looking for you and your fiance to kind of do something kind of cute oh, and date like. I see you. I see you. It can be potentially an aphrodisiac, maybe. <laughs> I like it. I like it because he's a tea drinker. He's a hardcore tea drinker. I'm the odd woman out. So yeah. No, I see you are. I, I, I would, see I would, you. you know, if you just wanted to try something different, I think you should, you could totally, obviously tasting rooms aren't really open now because of COVID, sure. but hopefully in a few months, like that will change and you and your fiance can maybe try it out and um, see, and back. see how it goes. Yeah, because it, it is, it is very, it, it is a very intimate space and it's very quiet typically. And so you're really just like, you know, you're pouring yourself these different teas and you're tasting them and you know, all of your senses are energized because of it and from the smell as well as the taste. And then on top of that, it's just you and your partner, you know, and so you're kind of like embracing the silence while drinking something together. So it is it is it can be kind of very romantic. um, That was really poetic the way that you just described (laughs) that experience. And that's exactly why I, I, and I think that's exactly why subconsciously I'm getting more into tea because you and Rebecca spoke of it in such a beautiful, poetic, almost like musical way. And I wanted, you know, when someone is really into something and you're like, Ooh, get me some of that. Like I want to be stung (laughs) by that bee. Like I, so I, I believe that my, my feelings in tea are my feelings in tea, my feelings on tea are slowly changing. I also have a friend that just got sober. Uh, she's been sober for about three years now. And when Ooh. we FaceTime, she's a big tea drinker. And so I will drink tea with her. It feels like our connective, Aww, yeah. Um, yeah, like digital tissue uh, in a way. But in terms of the, the the gendering of tea, I definitely feel like if I see a man drink tea, mm-hmm. I think so i taking my fiance out of this because he's a hardcore tea drinker because he does not drink alcohol either. I feel like the only other time I really see men excited about drinking tea is if it's iced or in an Arnold Palmer. Mm. Like I feel like men in the United States to have a, a cup of tea, it's still sort of weirdly stigmatized as being something that is dainty. And if a man's going to have some tea, it's got to be iced and it's got to be in this big (laughs) frosty cup or it's got to be like out on a golf green like an Arnold Palmer like there's got to be some sort of what's the word I'm looking for uh there's got to be some sort of male trope flowing in the bottom of it if you know what I mean right right and honestly I don't I really like that's why I'm so excited to speak to Rebecca because it just it's bizarre to me um, because anywhere else in the ro- world you go, men and women both drink copious amounts of it and, mm-hmm. and men and women both brew it. So it's not even like, oh, it's just a woman's duty kind of thing. I will sure. say though, there is some sexism there because like, I remember when I was kind of a teenager and my mom had this 
kind of really awkward conversation with me about basically saying like, I need to teach you how to like brew a perfect tea. And I'm like, what? And I totally didn't go for it. You know, crazy <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, teenager self of <laughs> that I was. Sure. And, Rebellious, uh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I was like, why? I don't want to. And she was like, it's really important. You know, she says like yes. back then for me to be able to like brew the perfect cup of tea and serve that to my potential, like people I'm going to like the family I'm going to marry into was really a big deal. And like, it still kind of happens. I would say in Asia, like, especially in more um, kind of traditional style Mm. settings, you know, um, Mm -hmm. versus kind of like the more modern day. It just kind of depends on on the family to the family structure, but it is, there is some sexism there about being able to like, um, Impress, make a good cup of tea impress a man yeah exactly yes. but oh, god <laughs> don't kill me for bringing up a disney reference please don't kill me for this next statement <laughs> but yeah that was a thing in the old and the new mulan, mulan yep yeah yeah was like she wanted to you know backflip and kick and right, fight and all of right. those wonderful things that we now know that we love mulan for but i do remember the beginning of it her mom was like hey come make a cup of tea yep. and she's like but I want to kick ass. Like, <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. why am I doing this? Right. Yeah. I don't want to do this. Yeah. And I feel what you're saying. I see what your mom did there. Yeah, she was trying. And I think she gave up because she realized it wasn't really important anymore in that sense. But sure. Uh, but my dad sometimes still looks at me going, you know, your mom like brews the best tea out of oh. anyone else in the neighborhood like in our oh. c- community and you haven't learned a single thing from her and I'm uh-oh, just like, uh-oh. dad is doing that low-key shame he's yeah, like oh my daughter yeah, how could you not it's direct, but it's direct alana there's no low-key about it oh, okay i mean but, but flash forward you're married so cut to mom like i'm marriage material i, I, know, I still yeah. got you know what i mean yeah. like not being able to brew a perfect cup of tea to not hold me back from finding my man like I- yeah that's totally <laughs> fair i think that, that is totally fair <laughs> so i love all of this laughter because quite frankly y'all in interview we are laughing just as much mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if you felt like this option for a conversation about tea i laughed my ass off yes uh, rebecca <laughs> so- was fantastic yeah yeah so today's guest rebecca flint mark she is amazing we think you guys are going to love her on today's Mm -hmm. episode we're going to get to the bottom of just exactly how tea became coded as a ladies drink uh rebecca wrote an incredible article called wimp juice america's long strange history of gendering tea which i cannot recommend enough and i will drop the link in show notes also as a side note i love the name of this article because this particular podcast uh has a a hip-hop influenced name Mm -hmm. as does her article for any uh like early 2000s music listeners pimp juice was a semi hit on the radio so anything that has a little bit of hip-hop flavor we are all about here on black and yellow Mm -hmm. uh and we're gonna talk about the green the black the herbal and the oolong of it all and again there's gonna be a lot of laughter along the way this was a super fun conversation and Rebecca is capital R rad. Mm-hmm. So we are thrilled to bring you today's conversation. But before we do that, let's put our money where our mouth is, shall we, Ash? Yeah, let's do it. 
Sweet. So this is the part of our of our episode where we like to spotlight Black and Asian-owned businesses because we want to help you diversify your dollars and support minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses. I know that the, the BLM protests of 2020 are over, but that does not mean that you cannot engage in protests every day with the way that you spend. It's called economic protest, and we're here to help you with it. On this particular segment, we will spotlight a Black and Asian-owned business that we think is great, that we've either been customers of, are new customers of, or plan to be customers of in the future, because we want all of us to be in this together, supporting each other, and building up our own unique communities. So, I will begin. I chose Zach and Zoe Sweet Bee Farms. On Instagram, they're at Zach and Zoe Honey. And there used to be a point in my life where in college, when I would drink tea, I would drink it with no honey. And one time a friend asked me, what's the point? And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, And while I might not be a regular tea drinker, Though this episode is changing that uh, consumption (laughs) habit, I will give Rebecca and Ash credit for that. When I do, it must have honey and make it raw. Mm -hmm. Enter Zach and Zoe Sweet Bee Farm. So I found out about these brilliant Black beekeepers from the epitome of Black excellence herself, Oprah. Zach and Zoe Sweet Bee Farms was born out of a couple's love for their child who had really bad seasonal allergies. Raw honey was a natural treatment that proved successful and thus began their journey as beekeepers. Zach and Zoe's Sweet Bee Farms make honey that is pesticide and additive free, just pure raw honey. I purchased a jar of their wild of their wildflower lavender honey, which cannot arrive soon enough because my current jar of honey is all kinds of crystallized and crazy looking. So uh, support Black beekeepers and grab a jar of honey. Their website is ZachAndZoe.co. I will also drop that link in show notes. Ash, what you got? I have Song Tea and Ceramics. Their Instagram is HelloSongTea. This San Francisco-based tea shop was founded by Peter Long, who used to be a tea buyer for Red Blossom. And he decided to start his own cute tea shop where he offered rare and unique oolong teas, primarily because that's what he really loves to drink. So it's not the kind of tea shop where you can get every tea under the sun. It is very specific and handpicked by Peter. So every year he sources new teas from Taiwan and China. They also offer beautiful ceramic teapots that are handmade by artists that Peter finds. So before COVID-19, you could try each tea before purchasing it, which was pretty awesome because they had these communal tasting rooms. But for now, you can support his tea room by ordering online or curbside pickup if you're local to the Bay Area. So help a fellow Asian out and keep warm with Song Tea. And their website is songtea.com. We will drop links to both of these businesses in show notes. And let's kick into our guest interview for today. This woman is rad. Her name is Rebecca Flint Marks, and she is a senior editor at Eater. She was previously a freelance writer whose stories about food and culture appeared in publications including The New York Times, The New Yorker, Taste, Wired, and The California Sunday. She's also the recipient of a James Beard and IACP Awards, and she currently resides in Brooklyn. 
Rebecca Flint Marks. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Hi, Ashna. (laughs) Why don't we start out by having you tell our audience about the work that you do? Sure. So I am currently an editor at Eater. I'm a senior editor there. And what I do is mostly work with a lot of writers, uh, also recipe testers, because we've just started to broaden our cooking section. So I'm working on a lot of recipes right now as we sort of figure out how to do that. And I also work on long form stories, uh, so more reported features, uh, which is actually what I was first hired to do. So the, those two things pretty much make up most of my job. I have to tell you, I feel like I go on Eater LA every other day because you guys have a running list of the restaurants that have closed. Yes. And yes. so sometimes, you know, <laughs> and sometimes I go on and I'm like, oh no, that's gone. Or sometimes I'll be like, oh, thank God that's gone. Like, that's been there for a while. Right, right. We won't name names, but yes. <laughs> exactly. So you wrote a really fascinating article called Wimp Juice, America's Long, Strange History of Gendering Tea. And I got to tell you, the subject matter of tea and gender is an interesting one that I had never considered until coming across and reading your article. What inspired you to write it? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, you know, I was I was thinking earlier about like how when you asked me this question, uh, I was like, I don't even remember like why I started <laughs> looking into this. And so I went back and looked at my emails with my editor, and where it had come from was uh, so taste where I was, you know, writing at the time was doing this package on coffee. And I'm not a coffee drinker. I never have been. I've tried. It just didn't take. I do, Uh, however, drink a lot of tea. And I remember saying to my editor, you know, I feel like it's actually kind of lonely to be a tea drinker in some ways, because (laughs) at least in this country, right, we're so like coffee, coffee, coffee. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you don't drink coffee, especially after everybody started getting excited about like third wave and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, nobody was really paying that much attention to tea, at least not in the way I was hoping they would. So I said, you know, I don't know if this works for your package, but this is kind of where my head is at. And by the way, I kind of feel like maybe it is a bit lonelier, you know, and tea doesn't get as much respect in this country because there are feminine connotations to it. I mean, I personally went to an all women's college where tea was a really big deal. We would have tea parties. And yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that was something that was in my history. And so I guess in my own way, I had seen tea sort of through this very feminine lens. So I, you know, that was kind of like how the story started. And then sort of in the course of just poking around online, just to see if there was anything to the story idea, I came across Econ, which is the um, tea company Mm -hmm. mentioned in the article that is basically was created by these two men as a tea company to appeal specifically to men because they felt that tea was this very feminine gendered thing in this country and that men were being left out. So um, <laughs> that is kind of like how- Can't story, leave them out. I know, I know they get left out of everything. It's very unjust. So right. um, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was kind of like how the ball started rolling. Um, yeah, but it was it was a very fun process. Thank you for sharing that because that's so fascinating to me because, you know, I mentioned this to you earlier, but having traveled and, and, you know, my parents being from abroad, one of the things that I've always been used to is seeing both men and women drinking it, tea, and never having this issue of, oh, this is feminine, I can't drink it. And it's, and so it's bizarre that in America, that's 
um, it's so feminine. And so I'm curious, you know, in your article, you presented two very thought provoking theories on how tea became, you know, a feminine or to be perceived as a feminine beverage. One was because of the proliferation of tea rooms. And then your second theory was the temperance movement. So can you talk to us about those two, you know, ideas and which one you feel like you believe more? Sure. I mean, I, I think as a preface to this, I would just say it's all sort of connected, right? So mm. tea rooms are really fascinating. And before I started working on this story, I will admit I knew next to nothing about them. Um, mm. I think I sort of had a, a, an image of a tea room as this sort of like very sort of fusty, <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. One in my neighborhood in San Francisco that that definitely you know sort of hit all of those notes. But when I started hmm. reading more about this um, and talking to this this professor named Erica Rappaport, who has written extensively about about tea and temperance and and also tea rooms, I, I really became fascinated with it. So. Tea rooms really started, that was something that started in England uh, mm -hmm. in the 19th century. And what made them interesting, and this is true for both England and when, when you started to see these more in the United States, was like tea rooms were one of very, very, very few ways a woman could actually make money, you know, in a way that was considered mm -hmm. societally acceptable. Mm -hmm. So when the first tea rooms, like from what I understand, like this would be like a woman opening a room in her home or opening her garden and serving tea and snacks. And mm -hmm. so this, this, again, it was considered acceptable to do this, you know, not only for a woman to be selling tea, but also for women to be gathering in a tea room to drink tea. Um, women, you know, were barred from most places where, you know, it was considered acceptable for men to hang out, such as coffee houses and taverns right. and hotels. You just didn't really see women in these places. So tea rooms became, you know, this way for them not only to earn money, but also to gather in public uh, and to talk and exchange ideas. You know, one, one story that you hear a lot is that the women's suffrage movement in this country actually started over a tea party. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know enough about oh, that to really explain that. Interesting. That's right, fascinating. It, yeah. it is really interesting. Yeah. So I mean, tea parties. Um, yeah, like the the tea room was like a huge part of allowing women to just sort of you know start to gather and talk about ideas. Um, so you know, in that way, tea rooms did become very much associated with women. Which is not to say you never saw a man at a tea room. Actually, you know, one of the more interesting things I learned sort of in, in reading was like, um, so tea rooms like predominantly were run by white women for other white women. However, mm -hmm. African-American women also ran tea rooms and they ran them, you know, for the community generally. So whereas, mm -hmm. oh, wow. at, you know, yeah, whereas like at tea rooms that were, you know, predominantly like white owned and a white clientele, that was like, from what I understand, that was like mainly for women who were going there. Whereas in African-American communities, it was like for the community at large. So you would see mm -hmm. both men and women frequent in these places. So yeah, so tea rooms like in the early 20th century in this country did start to become like a very, you know, a very big thing. And that of course, you know, fed into like the suffrage movement because the mm -hmm. suffrage movement in this country was like sort of gathering steam during that part of the century as well. Um, so yeah, so tea rooms were like a really big deal for, for women. On the other hand, you get the temperance movement and that, that is like a really, it's a complicated thing. Um, but yes, in, in, the, in England in the 19th century, starting sort of like, I think it was around the 1830s, 1840s, like the temperance movement really started to take off in that country. 
and what you would see. And, you know, it was both men and women who were active in the temperance movement, which also had a lot of religious overtones, a lot of more like moral overtones, which is like kind of its own very complicated yes. story <laughs> which is yeah. right to hear. Um, but, but the point is like you would what what they would do um this was again in england you would get these like temperance i guess activists for for lack of a better term who would host these giant tea parties that were meant for like working class men and women the fact that they were serving tea because tea was you know in england as it is here did have feminine connotations but by serving tea Basically, what these temperance uh, these temperance folks were signaling was like this is a heterosocial event, so both mm-hmm. men and women can come mm-hmm. here, you know, and and sort of like gather around the tea table. And essentially, the, the thought was like if you if you drink tea, if you like master these manners of being around like the tea table in this nice, you know, very sort of middle class setting, this will like sort of enable you to like function better in society and to become more of a part of like polite and respectable society. So tea was like very much part of that. Um, You didn't see these like tea parties in the same way in this country for sure is from what I understand, it was very much an English thing, but you did, again, you have this like very strong association between tea and temperance. And then of course, you know, a lot of the time the people serving the tea were women. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, again, you you have these two things that were sort of like working to like really sort of strengthen that association between women and tea. I I think for me, you know, as to what I sort of place more weight on, you know, it's complicated because I I do feel like it's all very related. I, I do sort of like tend to give a little more weight to tea rooms just because, again, this is like you know, women who are allowed to make a living by, by doing this, which was like a very radical thing at the time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and also just like the fact that you have women able to gather in a space in public, whereas before, you know, they were just meeting in private homes and like, couldn't really go out. (laughs) I think that's a really powerful thing. So of those two theories, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I will say that is, that is the one that sort of like, does seem more compelling to me, let's just say. Understood. Yeah, it feels yeah. like this country has had a very long history not wanting women to have their own money, yes. not wanting to pay them fairly and equitably, <laughs> yes. all of those things. We're still dealing with that in 2021. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. It's yep. ridiculous. Yep. Ah, so I have a quick question because you also mentioned coffee. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like coffee or the morning joe is yes. the more masculine uh, get-up-and-go beverage between tea and, obviously, coffee. Why was coffee thought to be uh, the man's drink? And why was coffee thought to be a better replacement than alcohol? Right. Well, so that's also complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So what I understand, so I think this, this, like, held different weight in different countries. But, I mean, as to, like, sort of the first point of, like, coffee being a man's drink, I mean, my understanding is, like, I mean, first of all, you have coffee houses, right? And the tradition of coffee houses was these were very male places. These were, Mm -hmm. you know, going back centuries um, in Europe, specifically, these were places where men just gathered to drink coffee and Mm -hmm. like exchange these lofty ideas, you know, Um, (laughs) and all the, how to not pay women. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. So yeah, too bad. Like women were not allowed to join the party. Right. But like, you've got Mm -hmm. these men drinking coffee together and like talking. So 
there's already like this sort of strong connotation between or connection between, you know, men and coffee and men drinking coffee in public places. And then, you know, what, one thing that's really interesting where, where working men is con- are concerned is, you know, from what I've read, like at a certain point in history, you know, it was considered totally normal for like, you know, men on the job, like working men to just like take an alcohol break during the day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you're not drinking to get drunk but you are drinking like say whiskey, which is thought whiskey, that that's right. a right, medicinal purpose. Mm-hmm. But if you take away alcohol and you give men coffee to drink, well, coffee is still like, it's an acceptable drink to have while you're working. You know, you, you sure. take your break, you drink your coffee. It's probably going to like wake you up, maybe give you more focus. It is an acceptable mm-hmm. drink, you know, to, and, and, you know, look, regardless of the fact that tea, some tea has, you know, almost as much, if not, as much or more caffeine content than coffee, um, you know, coffee is this drink that was always associated with like get up and go, vim and vigor. You know, it has right. strength, a strong cup of joe. So I think, you know, that's that sort of like paves the way for coffee to be thought of as this like more acceptable drink for the working man. Although, you know, look, in in England and obviously in many, many other parts of the world, coffee has always sorry, tea has always been a drink for working class people men and women. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, in the context of temperance, um, one thing that you saw a lot with coffee, at least in certain places, like in Australia, for example, there were these coffee palaces, that's what they were called. And they were, open. yeah, they were opened as part of the temperance movement. So you just had these places where people would go to drink coffee and that was your substitute for alcohol. So Mm. yeah, in certain ways it was thought of as like this thing you could drink you know, as an alternative to alcohol, though, you know, obviously, so was tea, they just had slightly different connotations. Um, the unifying principle was like, well, these are better alternatives than alcohol. And again, coffee, you know, coffee, in, in many ways, is sort of the antithesis of alcohol in terms of like what it does to your body. Sure. Um, so Stimulates I, you. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, again, it's, it's a very complicated question. And I don't 100% have the answer to it. But from what I've read, these are kind of the like more you know interesting theories as to like why why this actually happened. Yeah, it's definitely convoluted, that's for sure. Uh, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, you know the working class in America, so you know there's obviously some class connotations there, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because sometimes, at least in the U.S., tea like in comparison to abroad, like you mentioned, where the working class would drink tea and it was it was common and it wasn't anything it wasn't a big deal. Here, sometimes there's that perception that if you drink tea, you're maybe snobbier or you're it's aristocratic or it's the you know. Um, so, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think, again, it's something else we can blame the British for. I mean, to be <laughs> oh. very odd in that answer. I mean, <laughs> because like, if we're looking at this country specifically, right, so we go back to like colonial times. And from what I've read, um, actually, like the colonists, like, apparently drank even more tea than the British did. Um, wow. You know, yeah, in the early days of, you know, the colonial settlement of this country. Um, however, you get the Boston Tea Party, which is, you know, another one of these kind of ironic things in sort of the story of gender and tea, because the Boston Tea Party is probably like 
the most macho tea party in all right, of the right. <laughs> right. Exactly. I was just about to say that. I was like, it's definitely not feminine, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. You get all these dudes like throwing crates of tea into the harbor, right? And so, yeah. you know, not like tea all of a sudden is like seen as this like, or taxation of tea is seen as like this very British, it's another symbol of like British oppression. Um, mm. So it doesn't have a great, you know, connotation basically. However, um, also happening in colonialist times, though, one thing that I've read was that a woman's social status was in some ways measured by, like, how much tea she was serving in her home. So there is this connection between, like, tea hmm. and class. And then, you know, you get also, like, in the wake of sort of, like, the, the Boston Tea Party, you get, like, you know, these women who are basically like trying to raise support for, I guess, you know, revolutionary action against the British. And they themselves are like taking part in like, you know, like making so-called like liberty teas. And liberty teas were this like teas that weren't actually tea. They were tea that was made, you know, with like various botanicals that they could find um, and steep. And so these tea substitutes that, again, were being, like, sold to, like, raise money, you know, against the British. Um, you know, again, as that relates to class, like, there was still, like, this sort of, like, you know, class association of, like, if you're, like, you know, proper, if you're, like, a woman of, like, societal standing, you're serving tea in your home. And hopefully you're serving, like, a lot of it, you know, because, again, this, like, yeah. is social standing mm -hmm. so that is sort of where it started but then also i mean if you look at and again it sort of goes back to like you know the temperance movement ideas of like tea being this like civilizing genteel force to sort of like you know make working class people behave uh in ways that upper class people or you know solidly middle class upper middle class people wanted them to like again mm -hmm. it sort of becomes this this drink that's associated with like the upper class or the aspirational class um, so yeah, even from, even from the beginning, you know, its origins in this country, you do kind of like see that like an element of that sort of like working its way into like how we thought about tea. And then I think again, you know, sort of moving, you know, forward to like more modern times, you know, pop culture is, has certainly like reinforced that. I, I think, you know, we, we still tend to see tea as like something that you see people drinking in British TV shows, you know, upper mm -hmm. like Down Abbey kind of things, um, you know, where you have, again, this association between like wealthy people who are, you know, either drinking tea or being served tea by servants. Um, so sure. yeah, there's a lot of layers to it, but it, it is interesting to go back and sort of look at, you know, when tea first became a, a presence in this country like how it was being consumed and by who and then how that kind of like changed according to you know what was going on on a larger scale yeah it's interesting i mean for a nation and the nation i'm talking about is the usa for a nation that uh essentially our birthing cry was an act of vandalism to protest <laughs> the high price of tea we're pretty like meh when it comes to sort of tea consumption, it feels like the Americans are very ambivalent to tea. It's an yeah. interesting little uh, narrative shift there. Yes. Yes, definitely. So in the article, uh, you mentioned Econ, which is the loose, the loose leaf tea company geared towards men. They serve loose leaf teas with a hearty helping of masculine tropes on the side. It's not just <laughs> enough to sell tea. It has to be like supercharged with all of these extra 
promises of virilism and strength and all of those things. Um, but going through the site, it also the language felt very explicit that this is a a drink for quote unquote men, like big strong men. No teabagging here. <laughs> and you are a very dignified woman. I am purely asking this out of a journalistic need or else I would not include this question. But the act of tea bagging and the uh, the the colloquialness of that phrase, uh, do you think that has anything to do with possibly making men feel like, oh, no, tea is not for me. I don't want to be a tea bagger or see anyone, you know, or, or have anyone catch me tea bagging? <laughs> I actually love this question. I, I couldn't resist. I'm so sorry. Like, I promise no, you, I couldn't no, no. I just have to ask it. I, you know, it's funny. It's like not, I can't claim I ever thought about this before, but like, once asked, <laughs> so I like, I, I find this like so interesting. And, you know, I actually have gone and looked back at like where that term even started um, mm. because I just didn't know. I was like, how long has this actually been in circulation and in, in a broad sense. And so what's interesting is like John Waters had this 1998 movie Pecker. I don't know if you've seen it or not, yes, but I have mm -hmm, love John I Waters. <laughs> okay. So for anybody who hasn't seen Pecker, like he uses the term teabagging. Teabagging is a thing <laughs> in this movie. Mm -hmm. And basically he subsequently after this movie, he did an interview with somebody where he was like, yeah, that's kind of like how this term got popularized is because I stuck it in my movie. John Waters himself, oh. I believe had been introduced to the concept of teabagging at Baltimore go-go bars, um, where oh. this was like a thing, you know, some dancers would do for their, for their customers. Um, Why not? Okay. So, you know, as to like whether it has deep enough roots to like really affect like how men think of tea Probably not. However, okay. it's also really interesting to think about that, uh, like back during like the Tea Party movement in, you know, when was that like mm -hmm. in uh, 2009, 2008, yeah. like people started throwing around the term teabagging. <laughs> people yeah. took members of the Tea Party and had absolutely no idea what teabagging actually was. They would talk mm -hmm. about like teabagging Obama and they didn't mm. know what they were talking about. And so this like actually created a lot of hilarity among certain news anchors who did know <laughs> exactly <laughs> what they were talking about. No. So like, I don't know. I, I don't think, I, I think it would be a stretch to say that a, like a lot of men are like, Oh, if I use tea bags, that means like, you know, people think yeah. I'm like dragging my testicles across somebody's face. Um, <laughs> Pretty, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, it didn't help. <laughs> I think we can say that. It's interesting though, actually, when you even think about the tea bag, because like the tea bags origins, like themselves are like sort of in dispute. Like, like Ooh. what I've learned actually in the course of my research is that the first patent on a tea bag was taken up by two women in Milwaukee in 1901. Um, wow. Yeah, no, that was like fascinating to learn. But then there's also people who believe that it was actually invented like, like several years later by this male tea merchant who basically started like sending out his wares and like little silk bags that people then started mm. using for tea. Mm. So, you know, there's some debate, but you know, I think whether or not you believe 
you know, depending on who you believe did it, regardless of that, like teabagging, sorry, not teabagging, teabags. It's <laughs> happening. Like teabags do have like an association with, with women sort of like going back to their very origin. So it's, it's really interesting. I, I honestly think like, I don't think it's so much like the teabags themselves as like, you know, just sort of like very broadly generalized, generalized about men. So my apologies. I, I do think there's something to that idea, at least that is believed by a lot of people sort of like in the food realm is that like to really get a lot of men interested in like making food, like you have to give them this sort of like, there has to be this aspect of it where they're like, you know, using some sort of gadget or like building something or like, ah. so like, you know, when mm. you start looking at like, you know, sort of tea gadgetry that is advertised towards men, it's like the tea bag is just way too basic, you know? So mm. it's like, you have to like give them like, various steeping devices and, you know, all this mm. kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's, you know, this is just sort of a very loose theory that I have, but I, it, it's, yeah, I think there is something to the idea that, you know, maybe tea bags, I, I don't think it's like, there's a lot of men out there who are being like tea bags. Good God, that's way too feminine. <laughs> but I do think, yeah, a lot of people have figured out ways to market tea to men, you know, even if they are not consciously doing it, that like, mm-hmm sort of like do, pardon me, like they do sort of like take this like gadgetry sort of aspect into account. So I don't know. Hmm. It's it's an interesting thing to think about. Let me put it that way. Okay. Mine's out of the gutters now. We're we're out of the gutter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, so you are talking about gadgetry, uh, which I think is a very interesting way to look at this. Um, So do you, and this is obviously we're specifically talking about America where it seems to be more of a of a problem, this gendering of tea. But why is it so why would you argue it's so American in comparison to everyone else? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think there's like a super clear answer to it. I mean, I think some of it just has to do with the fact that like you know, we do not have a long history of tea consumption. Like, Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of other countries around the world, their tea consumption goes back thousands and thousands of years. Um, You know, or tea, if if, like tea wasn't being produced in their countries, it was introduced to their countries, you know, like hundreds of Mm -hmm. years ago, which is certainly the case for a lot of countries in in Europe. Whereas the United States, obviously, it's, you know, compared to all that, we're a relatively new country. Um, You know, and I think, again, when you sort of like go back to like, you know, how tea was being consumed sort of like in the early, early parts of the country and then sort of like early parts of like our history. And then, you know, sort of like it it got this association with domesticity, which, of course, was considered to be the realm of women, Mm -hmm. you know, and then from there you get like, you know, women running tea rooms and talking about various ideas over tea and you get this whole sort of like idea of tea is just like this very feminine sort of institution, like the tea party Mm -hmm. specifically. Um, You know, I think that all sort of lends itself to like gendering tea in this country in a way that it wasn't in other countries. Um, So it it is really complicated. There's a lot of layers to it. And, And what I'm telling you now is like the very, just like very, very like, just a scraping of the surface, basically. But I think, yeah, you when you start to get these associations between like 
women and tea, it's something that really sticks. And then you also sort of look at, and obviously this is not just specific to this country, but when you look at sort of like the accoutrements that have been associated with tea in this country, you know, they are coded as like very feminine. I mean, you think about like all like what you see at like a tea party or a traditional tea party, right? It's like all doilies and tiny little teacups that are made for smaller hands. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and so again, this kind of lends itself to this idea of this is, this is for women. And then you kind of also look at the food that's being served at tea parties. It's very dainty. Yeah. Right. Obviously have such dainty appetites. Um, (laughs) You know, again, it's, it's like the kinds of food you're seeing. It's, it's the kind of places where it's being served and it's, you know, and, and there is also, again, I think a class component that comes into it where tea is seen is seen as this thing that like quote unquote, nice ladies (laughs) do together. They, they have parties. Right. And, and, you know, even, even where I went to college, uh, which was Bryn Mawr college, you know, I, Bryn Mawr college historically was this very upper crust women's college and you're getting tea parties there that are, you know, thrown by and for these, these privileged female students. So again, all these things kind of like help to cement tea, the idea of tea as this thing that is, that is more for women. Um, yeah. So it's, again, it's very layered, <laughs> but this, from what I, what I have read and researched, this is kind of like the understanding I've arrived at. Got it. I have to tell you, I was a, a three espresso a day drinker until prepping for this episode. I know that Ashna is a, a tea drinker, but <laughs> yeah, you have inspired me to drink more tea. So I am sitting here with a teacup like, okay, yes, I want to be a part of the change. I want to be a part of this, <laughs> this you know, uh, this ungendering of tea, which brings us to our call to action. So anytime a gender issue that has been hiding in plain sight is illuminated, we get excited and we want to take action. How can this next generation of tea consumers, tea sellers, tea culture creators, uh, how can we work to undo the unjust gendering of tea? And how can we make tea a more inclusive gender beverage? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, one, one place that my mind goes is just looking, starting even to look more critically at the tea industry itself, which Ooh. is interesting because so the upper levels of the tea industry are largely dominated and controlled by men. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the lower level, meaning like a lot of the people who are actually picking tea leaves and doing, you know, very hard labor to get mm-hmm. tea to our tables, a lot of those people are women. Uh, and they're not paid well at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's a really mm-hmm. hard way to make a living. So I think, you know, one place to start is even just becoming like more aware of like where this tea is coming from, who's picking it, who's making money from it. Um, you know, and then who is like, which companies are out there actually trying to like make a difference, whether that means actually paying growers or, and the women who are like harvesting tea, like a living wage, you know, are there tea companies that are run by women, you know, who are really trying to make Mm. a difference? There are obviously tea companies that are run by women. Um, you know, so I think supporting those companies is like a good way to start. I think education again, just learning more about like where your tea's coming from, who's benefiting from its sale. I think that's another way to start. I think, you know, also, I think there's, there's probably something to be said for like, you know, like trying to reach out directly to tea companies just to demand Mm -hmm. transparency, to ask them like, what are you doing, you know, to sort of like make this a more equitable proposition 
for, for men and women, like, you know, and I, I think also, you know, just supporting spaces where men and women are gathering to drink tea. Um, you know, one of my, one of the places that I mentioned in the story is called Tay and Company, and they are this wonderful tea room, um, that is located in New York's West Village. Um, that is like a really cool place. It is run by a, I believe they're a husband and wife team. And, you know, it's one of the things that makes it so great is just like everybody's gathering there. It doesn't really matter (laughs) what your gender is. Like, sure. It's just a space that like, you know, people can just go and hang out. And I, I think that's like another thing I would just love to see more of is like tea rooms that are like that, you know, where, Mm. you know, it's, they're just seen as like these welcoming places for, for everybody, regardless of gender. Like, and also I think too, there's like this idea, you know, among some people that like, to really appreciate tea, you have to know a lot about tea. And then, you know, then that kind of mastery is something that's like becomes very associated with men. I feel like that's, yeah. you know, that's always, always yeah, something sure. to cut it mm-hmm. out. Um, right. And so I think, I think making like just welcoming places for men and women to like really, and, and again, like regardless of gender, you know, anybody can come and like learn about tea and really enjoy it and understand just more what it's about. Because I think that's another thing too, that sort of works against tea is like, yes, there's a lot of people who are buying tea in grocery stores, you know, buying, you know, whether it's loose leaf or in bags, but I think the institution of a tea room or tea shop is still like pretty limited, like, especially when you compare that to coffee houses. Um, So I think just like having more access and education for people is like one, one thing that would be really good. And again, just, you know, from the consumer standpoint, just like learning more, um, about, you know, what's going on in the industry. It is, it is a very, you know, it's a large industry, uh, obviously, and there's a lot going on and there's a lot, you know, as with any other industry, I think there's, you know, probably a lot of inequality, um, to, to talk about. So I think again, just education, supporting women run tea companies, you know, places that are advocating companies that are advocating for women, you know, are picking tea, making tea, uh, all of these things I think are, are important and sort of like, you know, if not degendering tea completely, mm-hmm. then at least sort of like encouraging more people to look at it as like this universal beverage that is relevant to, to most of us in the way that coffee is relevant. Um, that's, that's like a hard, that's a hard task. I think coffee has, you know, obviously like a lot of, a lot of mileage on tea, <laughs> but still, sure. you know, you got to mm-hmm. start. So yeah. Yeah, I go to Burning Man. I didn't go, obviously, this past year, but uh, there is a tea camp at Burning Man that has been, I want to say it's been there for about 10 years, and they are one of the coolest camps to stop by because they're serving tea, only hot tea. They don't believe in iced tea, even in at Burning Man, which is like in the middle of the desert, but they're <laughs> super passionate about tea and spreading tea education. So I totally agree with you, and I kind of now want to reach out to them and be like, oh my God, guys, someone else definitely agrees with your mission. Yes, let's de-gender tea for the, you know, in the next coming decade. That's yeah, that is so cool. I would love to see more of that for sure. <laughs> and the next so, time, oh, go ahead. No, no, go for it. Go, go, go. Oh, no, I was just going to say the next time I'm ever in New York, once travel is, you know, back to Ooh. normal and safe, I need to check out the Tan Company because I yeah. love New York and I've never been there. So yeah. um, thank you for that. Uh, I think, Alana, you were going to introduce the rapid fire, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is the part of the show where we just want our listeners to get to know you a little bit more away from the work that you do. We want to know Rebecca Flint Marks when she's not writing and when she's not teeing it up. 
So I'm going to ask you a series of 11 rapid fire questions. Ask, answer the first thing that comes to mind. There are no wrong answers here. Okay, go for it. Are you great? Okay, great. Awesome. <laughs> here we go. Favorite type of tea? So I have pretty pedestrian tastes. I'm just going to be honest about that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm like a big herbal tea drinker and mm. I love like a good uh, Twining's lemon ginger and a, uh, what is it called? Uh, traditional medicinals, uh, mm -hmm. throat coat tea. Those are like my go-tos, 100%. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, what's your go-to recipe in the pandemic? Ah, so that's, it has changed with the pandemic, but I will say one that I return to a lot is um, Ali Slagle's uh, in the New York Times cooking section. She has a recipe, it's a one pot recipe for beans and rice, and it is really simple, really delicious, and I make it a lot. Ooh, I'm gonna look it up and then drop it in show notes so that everybody can have that. Uh, what's your favorite cookbook that you cannot live without? So that also changes, <laughs> depending on the cooking I'm doing. But I will say the one that I currently can't live without is one I actually just received in the mail and really cannot wait to start cooking from and baking from. It is, um, so Roxana Julepat, she is a pastry chef in LA. Uh, she has a great bakery called Friends and Family. She has a brand new cookbook called Mother Grains. And it is all just about like, you know, alternative, ancient uh, heirloom grain baking. And I'm mm. really obsessed with it. So I've just been sort of pouring through it and picking out things I want to make. And so right now I would say that cookbook is essential to me. Ooh, Ash and I are both in LA. So we're gonna have to check out the friends and families, the bakery it's that so she good. owns. It's so good. Okay. Yeah, Checking definitely it out. noted that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge foodie. So it's not just tea I'm excited about. I'm a huge foodie in general. So uh, yeah, I totally am checking that out. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for the tip. Of course. Uh, what was the last book that you read that left a lasting impression on you? Yeah, so I was thinking a lot about this actually. And the last, and I actually read this book probably a year and a half ago, and I've, I've read many books since, but this one has really stayed with me. Uh, it is by T. Kira Madden, and it is called Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. It is her memoir. Um, it is yeah. a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I don't even read a lot of memoirs, uh, but I just gobbled this one up. She has a really fascinating story and I love the way she's sort of like figured out a way to do memoir in a way that does not feel particularly conventional. She plays a lot with sort of like linear time chronology. Um, mm. You know, she talks, she just, she covers a lot of ground. There's so much in there just about identity, sexuality, class, like it, basically most topics you can think of, she manages to, to put in her book in a way that feels like just extremely real and, and honest and compelling. So I, I cannot recommend that book enough. Ooh, noted. I'll drop it in show notes for anyone who's looking for a new book to read uh, during this kind of sort of lockdown. Uh, <laughs> I feel well, like everyone's on a different yeah, level. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what brand do you think markets tea the best? Oh, this is hard question to answer because I don't think anybody is doing like, like a job where I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. But I will say one company I like a lot, and this is a San Francisco company. It's actually, it's, it's called Song Tea and it's, it's a tea room, or at least before the pandemic, it was this beautiful tea room where you could go in and just, you know, 
sample teas, learn about teas, buy teas, mm. like, as well as like various beautiful, you know, gadgets and accoutrements that went with tea and they sell their own tea. And I, I just think they do a really gorgeous job. Um, and it's very like low key. They're, they're not, I don't know. It's, it's just like very simple, very classic. Um, and I love them. I, I, I was really sort of like sucked into what they were doing when I, when I first learned about them. So even though I, I see a lot of tea out there, like I always come back to them as somebody who I think is just doing like a really beautiful job. Awesome. Song Tea San Francisco. I'll drop that in show notes as well. Uh, what was the last purchase that you made that excited you? Ah, uh, so this, this was actually a lot of fun. Um, I follow on Instagram, <laughs> I follow this Portland artist named Lisa Congdon and I love her work and she does prints. And so for the Biden Harris inauguration, she was, she had been like basically commissioned to do this like uh, commemorative print of their inaugural invitation. And cool. so you could, you could buy these prints and like, all of the proceeds go to fair or went to fair fight. And so I bought one and I was super excited because like, I feel like I always miss out on stuff like that. Like they're always sold out by the time I get around to doing anything. <laughs> like I snagged one of these things and it is like currently waiting to be framed. So I'm still really excited about that. Awesome. Uh, this is my standard dinner party question. What would your last meal on earth be? <laughs> this is a hard question to answer. <laughs> Um, I find myself just thinking of like the food that I loved eating during the summer. And I, I guess, mm. so I would say, because summer feels really far away still right now. So it um, does yeah. here in New York. Um, so what I love and like one meal that always gives me a lot of happy memories just because of the people I've, I've had it with is like, so boiled shrimp served with cocktail sauce, mm. buttered Parker house rolls that are still kind of warm. Um, I want a nice coleslaw because I love coleslaw and I have many ideas about how coleslaw, coleslaw should be served, which I won't bore you with right now. Um, okay. Corn on the cob with like lots of butter and salt. And mm. then I want a chocolate cake with really thick frosting. And then aside from that, I would like a blueberry cobbler with some kind of ice cream. It doesn't necessarily have to be van vanilla, maybe like a sweet corn ice cream. That would pretty much sum up for me oh and then probably like a pims cup to just go with everything awesome <laughs> i love this answer yes i love a detailed answer to this question <laughs> but now i have to have a follow-up when you say coleslaw are you a mayo based or yeah a i was just i was like please like, tell me which one yeah. oh my god so i oh i think a lot about this and i am such a moderate in most things and this is like no exception i would say i actually i like both and like but here's really the, but there's a cap there's always a caveat right so the the like mayo-based coleslaw that i like tends to be the stuff you find at like not amazing restaurants like it doesn't i'm not looking for something that's like you know like a pedigreed fancy mayo-based coleslaw i like the stuff where like the cabbage and the the carrots are like like just grated pretty fine, so you almost end up with like a not mush, but it's like it doesn't fight back <laughs> when you eat it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, yeah. So, and I like a bit of vinegar in there, but and I and a tiny bit of sweetness, but like I don't I don't like super sweet coleslaw. That to me is not not for me. But so like yeah, if we're talking mayo based coleslaw, that is kind of what I go for. If we're talking vinegar based coleslaw, like oil and vinegar, like yeah, I. 
that's kind of like what I crave more. I think like on a hot summer's day, like, like the mayo base isn't something I'll normally be, be reaching right. for when it's super hot. Yeah. Outside. Yeah. Right. yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> totally makes sense. Yeah. And I, and I find too, that like vinegar based coleslaws, I feel like you can be a little more creative with just in, in terms of like the kinds of seasonings you're using. That's just my experience. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love them both in different ways, I would say. Okay. Okay. Equal opportunity coleslaw. Exactly. I like it. <laughs> exactly. If you could go back in time, where and what time period would you go? So this is an interesting and very loaded question. And I, I think about Ooh. this sometimes because I'm like, okay, as a woman and a Jew and somebody who, you know, ah. had, like struggled with like clinical depression and like various health issues. Like when I think about going back in time, I'm like there aren't honestly, like a ton of times in history where I feel like I would be really comfortable. I understand. However, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, something that, that sort of like I've settled on is like, if I could, I would go back and this is like a very specific thing, but I would go back to the year 1952 in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite artists is Helen Frankenthaler. And I would go back to this year and place because that was the year she painted her, what became one of her very famous paintings, Mountains and Sea. And when she painted it and like was trying to sell it, nobody would buy this thing. It was like a hundred dollars and nobody bought it. And so I would go back to 1952 and I would pay a hundred dollars so I could have that beautiful painting. And then I would also, while I was there, just like buy some real estate in Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really smart. That's very smart. I'm a very practical person. So that, yeah, that's my answer for you. (laughs) Yeah, no, as women of color to a Jewish woman, I I absolutely understand going back in time is is tough. Yeah. 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 I feel like that's a really, really fun question if you're like a white so just throw yeah. me back whenever you want but no I, it's, yeah it's a complicated thing right <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> if you could be reincarnated as anyone who would you be oh yeah that's really hard I think if we're talking about somebody who's like still alive I don't know what this says about me but the answer I always end up coming back to is either Emma Thompson or Stevie Nicks um, <laughs> I think that's an awesome thing about you. Yeah, I think that's yeah. great. I mean, they both always seem like they've li- they've both lived really fascinating lives. Of, like, yeah. to be like great, you know, creative personal freedom more or less, and they always seem like they're having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if we're talking about somebody who's no longer alive. I think the answer I always go back to is David Bowie, because again, Uh, he just led this amazing, crazy life where he was just Mm -hmm. like sort of unrestricted by a lot of most of us. So yeah, he had so much confidence and lived his, it was just, yeah, I I feel like he's so inspiring to this day, you know? Yeah. 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 To just be yourself and appreciate yourself for who you are, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. One of the couple's costumes that I ask my partner to do with me every year is David Bowie and Iman because he's white and the size of Bowie and I'm a taller black girl. And he always <laughs> me and say, nice. OK, so who's going to be David Bowie? What's a food trend that you're looking forward to this year? Oh, this is easy. Uh, just being able to go back and eat in restaurants without mm. the fear of yeah. you know, hurting yeah. anybody or being hurt. That's that's yeah. really all I want. That's the only Vutrin I'm interested in right now. Yeah. Ooh, yes. That's fair. Yeah. And final, 
bad days. We all have them. <laughs> What's your remedy? Oh, um, my really simple answer to this is get outside. That's what I do. I, you know, hopefully the weather is okay enough to do this, but like, yeah, usually my remedy is, is to get on my bike and go somewhere. Um, or if that's not an option to like get my dog and, and just take a long walk and find some nature wherever I can find it. And just, yeah, just, I, I think nature really is, is kind of my remedy for, for most things. And that is, that is definitely one of them. Yeah. Fantastic. Rebecca Flint Marks, thank you so much for chatting with us today and illuminating this gender in beverage problem that we need to get on top of. How can our listeners keep up with you? If any of our listeners want to start a tea revolution, how do they let you know how it's happening? Give us all the plugs. Sure. Yeah. So uh, on Twitter, I am at Edible Complex. That is E-D-I-B-L-E Complex. Um, my website is just rebeccaflintmarks.com. Uh, I'm also, you know, I'm at Eater. So if, if anyone really wants to contact me at work, I'm at Rebecca at Eater.com. And I would say <laughs> those are the best ways to sort of like reach out or, or just see what I'm up to. Thank you so, so much. It's been great chatting with you and we will talk to you guys next time. Bye. That's our show, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so happy to have been able to talk to Rebecca. If you want to find the show on Instagram, we are at Black and Yellow Podcast. We are also there individually. My name is Alana Webster, but on the gram, they call me Renegade of Fun. My name is Ashna Sharon, and on Instagram, you can find me at Oshkosh009, and then my film company is at As the Collective LA. Thanks, guys. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.